which is on page 974 of that black hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one home. That is our gift to you right now. Um, and then today, Pastor Jeff Carson is going to be preaching to us. Jeff is a lay elder and an MC leader here at Cars. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians 3, I'll read the passage and y'all follow along. And then I'll pray and invite Jeff up. So Galatians 3, starting in verse 26, and I'm reading from the ESV. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for the blessing of this morning, uh, the opportunity to worship you, the opportunity to see our brothers and sisters, and to hear from your word. Lord, we pray for Pastor Jeff right now as he teaches us. Uh, would every word that he shares be from you and for us. God, bless the work and the time that he's invested over the last week. Uh, and by your spirit, continue to renew us. God, make us one, make us a church that is strong in unity. Thank you mostly for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, early on during quarantine, you know, as we were trying to figure out how to finish out the 2020 school year at home, as we were navigating the toilet paper shortage, uh, and just generally trying to survive with six humans in the same house all day, every day. Uh, some friends of ours dropped off a gift at our door. And it was something to give the kids, we have, we have four kids, uh, to give the kids a creative outlet, an activity to pass the time. They dropped off a bucket of perler boots. Perler boots. If, if maybe some of you parents or other kids at heart may be familiar with these. Uh, Perler beads are these little plastic beads with uh, a hollow center, and they come in a variety of colors, and they often come with uh, some different pre-made patterns. And, and the idea is that you arrange these beads in whatever you know, arrangement that you want um, on this little pegboard pattern, either using one of the pre-made designs or creating your own design. And then you cover your design with a piece of, piece of parchment paper or wax paper or something, and, and then you take a hot iron and you run the hot iron over your design on top of the parchment paper, and voila, your um, little arrangement of 100 individual beads melts and transforms into a fun new creation. So why am I talking about perler beads? That's a fair question. It's not a commercial, even though if you're a parent and you have young kids that won't eat them, they'd be great. You, you would have a lot of fun with them. Um, but catch this, the, the heat from the iron makes the beads into something new and transforms all of the little individual beads into one new grand design. Transformed into something new and one. So remind you of something? We're jumping back into our series in the book of Galatians this morning after a seven-week break, and so if you need a little bit of a refresher, uh, I'm going to give this one, but you can catch up uh, on the website with uh, the sermons up to this point. Uh, but Paul has spent the first two chapters of Galatians laying out the case for his apostleship. 
and the validity of the gospel that he preached. He, his gospel didn't come from men. He wasn't taught it by the other apostles. He received it from God. And the gospel is this, that only Jesus saves. Listen to how he sums that up in Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, not made right with God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And now we get to chapter 3 of Galatians, and he turns to address the Galatians and says, you should know from your own experience that these Judaizers, right, these false teachers who were trying to convince them that they needed to be circumcised, that they needed to follow food purity laws in order to really be the people of God, that they should know that these Judaizers are trying to lead them astray. He's telling them, like, you, you know, like in your own experience, you weren't saved by works of the law. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. But you shouldn't only know this from your own experience. You should know it from the scriptures even more. And so the, then Paul goes on to describe the promise that had been made to Abraham in Genesis. And then some 430 years later, the law that was given to the people of God. And Paul argues that the law didn't cancel out the promise given to Abraham. Because the law was never intended to give life, give new life. It was given to show the people their need for a Savior. It was to act as a, as a guardian until the promise came to pass in Jesus. And that day it was common for wealthy families to uh, appoint one of their household servants as, as a caretaker or a guardian, uh, almost a, a tutor or a babysitter, and, until their kids reached an age of maturity. And Paul says, that's what the law did. It, it babysat the people of God until the promise would be secured through faith in Christ. And so we, we make our way to our passage for this morning, and it serves as kind of a, a culminating statement for all that Paul has said up to this point, and it's the basis for what he's about to launch into in chapter 4, which we'll get to next week. And, and like the heat of the iron on the pearler beads, right? Came back to pearler beads. So the gospel makes us new and warm. And that's the main point for the sermon this morning. Only Jesus makes us new and one. And I trust all of us almost probably are able to count to two. Uh, and if so, then you can track along with the sermon outline this morning. We've got two main points. Only Jesus makes us new and only Jesus makes us one. And then under each of those points, two questions, kind of the same questions like how. How are we made new? How are we made one? And then what does that look like? Uh, and then to close out with two points of application. So first, only Jesus makes us new. And, and the first question I want to ask is, how are we made new? How are we made new in Christ? And so look with me again uh, at verses 25 and 26 of Galatians chapter 3. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In verse 25 there, the word faith is referring to the entirety of what Jesus accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. And so Paul's saying there's no longer any need for a tutor or for a guardian. The phrase, you know, where he says in 26, you are all sons of God. What he means by that is, like, you're no longer little kids, you're grown children. 
have no more need for the law to serve as a babysitter. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who perfectly fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. So when we put our faith in Jesus, his perfect obedience gets credited to us. It's this great transfer. Like he gets our sin and our guilt and the punishment for our sin, and we get his right standing before the Father. And all of this comes to us, according to verse 26, through faith. Now, just by way of reminder, when we speak of faith here, um, it means like belief or conviction of the truth of some person or idea. Not just like a mental assent to a list of true things about God, like, yeah, I'll check that box, I, I agree with that, I, I agree with that. No, it's, it's like trusting him with your whole life, like with your whole person. And this idea of faith has been a, a consistent theme throughout Paul's letter. And for any of you like grammar buffs, it could be a real fun exercise for you to go through and read Galatians and, and count the number of like times faith ends up as the object of a prepositional phrase in the letter to the Galatians. Okay, like of faith and by faith and through faith. The word appears over 20 times in this letter to the Galatians. So why all of this continued talk about faith, Paul? Well, I can think of at least a couple reasons. You know, first, maybe the Galatians, like us, kept sl slipping back into thinking that their standing before God was secured by their great obedience to the law of God, instead of by faith in the one who obeyed perfectly. They needed repeated reminders that the gospel of Jesus, it doesn't sound like perform for me and then I'll love you. You better hustle and work hard to earn my love. The gospel sounds like I loved you even when you were against me so much that I sent the Messiah, the Christ, to die for you in your rebellion. Receive my love and now walk in. We need those reminders too, Karis, as a safeguard against working to earn God's favor and love. And secondly, maybe the Galatians, like many of us, were treating faith like something that they did instead of something to continue walking in every day. You know, like, I, I did that, Paul. I, I trusted in God back then, so don't be talking to me about how I'm supposed to live my life right now. I done, I, I did that, right? Got it. They needed the repeated reminders that the way they trusted Christ when they first heard and received the good news of Jesus by faith was the same way that they were to keep trusting and keep walking in faith in their everyday lives. Faith isn't just a past tense action, it is a present tense trust. And we need those reminders too, Karis, as a motivator to keep the faith, to keep trusting in Him. So, Paul says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Only Jesus makes us new. Through faith in Christ, through being united to Christ by faith, we are made sons and daughters of God. We're no longer His enemies. We're no longer slaves to sin and Satan. We've been given a new identity as His family. And that's an identity 
Christian, that will never change for you. Every other thing or role or title that we put our hope in in this life is subject to change. Every other one. When, when I'm asked, you know, like, hey, Jeff, tell me about yourself, or, you know, who are you? You know, I naturally turn to things like, well, I'm a husband to Angela. I'm, you know, we're married with four kids. I'm an elder in this church that I love. Uh, now I'm a cabinet maker. Uh, I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. I'm a brother. I'm a son. You know, at one time I was a student. That's a pretty good description of uh, who I am. You guys would probably come up with, you know, a similar sounding list. But the sad reality is we live in a broken world where marriages end and children die and jobs are lost and businesses fail and houses burn and people move and friends sometimes fade away. And if the core of your identity and worth are wrapped up in those things, you're living on shaky ground. Karst, you are sons and daughters of God, dearly loved, once alienated and far off, but now brought near. And that will never change. You don't have to perform to earn it. Keep trusting, keep resting in Him and His completed, finished work. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Christ, the invitation is for you to, even now, to turn from your old way of living and to trust Christ in Him alone for new life. And if you'd like to talk about that, and I'd love to talk about that with you after. Chapter 3 closes out with this incredible promise. Look with me at verse 27. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul gets back to the original question that he had um, started to address earlier in the chapter. Like, who are the true children of Abraham? All right? And he says to the Galatians, both Jew and Gentile alike, you are Abraham's offspring because of your union with Abraham's true heir, Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us today who are putting our faith in Christ as his children. We are his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, heirs of the promise that was made to Abraham. So that's how we're made new. We're made new by our faith in the finished work of Christ. Let's, Let's move on to the second question in this first point. What does that new life look like? All right, so if we're made new by our faith in the finished work of Christ, what does that life look like? Well, look again with me at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is Paul's only explicit mention of baptism in the whole letter to the Galatians. And and in it we see that baptism, it gives us a picture of what it means to be made new in Christ. Uh, Just listen to Paul's description of baptism in Romans chapter 6. He writes to the Romans, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says we've been baptized into Christ's death, buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised, we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection and ours with him. And just like physical death is a decisive, clearly evident event, so our death to our old way of life is decisive. And baptism signifies that decisive break with our old selves, our old lives. The decisive break with, with who is the king in our life. And so it begs the question for us this morning, is, is that decisive event evident in your life? In the early church, uh, new followers of Jesus were baptized as a symbol of their departure from their old way of life and the coming of their new life in Christ. And the act of baptism was performed by fully immersing the new follower of Jesus in the water. And then after they came up out of the water, they were given a new robe symbolizing their putting on of Christ in new life. In baptism, we show the world and the community of faith that we are clothing ourselves with Christ as a robe. That's what Paul means in verse 27 when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't adding a renewed requirement to salvation here, right? Having argued so forcefully up to this point in his letter to the Galatians that, you know, the gospel, it wasn't Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus food purity laws. Uh, it's not like Paul was going to turn around and say, it wasn't those things, it's actually Jesus plus baptism, right? That's, that's not what he's doing here. That, that's... It's the good news of the gospel that it's not Jesus plus anything. Listen to how one commentator describes this. As we've already seen, baptism doesn't affect this transformation in some magical and mechanistic way. Rather, it bears witness to a prior and deeper cleansing, a washing of the precious blood of the Lamb. Baptism is the place where what has happened individually in regeneration is validated corporately within the fellowship of the community of faith. Baptism is a visible, outward picture of this inward transformation that God has accomplished in our lives in salvation. It, it signifies our death to our old lives and that we've now put on Christ. And it also signifies our entrance into this new people of God. The boundary line for the people of God is no longer circumcision, it's no longer law-keeping, it's no longer being direct descendant of a certain person. It's our identification and union with Christ himself, which is outwardly, visibly expressed in the act of baptism. And so if you're trusting in Christ this morning, and you're here, and you haven't yet been baptized in a local church, like we really would love to talk with you about that. So come find me or one of the other elders after the gathering, and let's chat about that. 
We've seen that Jesus makes us new by faith in his completed work. And, and what that looks like is it's, it's pictured for us in baptism, a decisive break, a death with our old life, um, being raised to walk in new life, and now putting on Christ. So now let's move on to the second main point. That's only Jesus makes us one. Only Jesus makes us one. So, first question, how are we made one? How are we made one? Well, spoiler alert, we're made one in the same way that we're made new in Christ. We're made one by our faith in the person and work of Jesus. Being made new and being made one are simultaneous realities, right? They happen at the same time. At the same time that we are given a new identity as sons and daughters of God, we are set in a whole new family, made one with brothers and sisters in Christ in all the world for all time. Go back with me just one more time to verse 26. Paul says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. We have to remember that Paul was writing this to the Galatian church, which was comprised of both Gentile and Jewish Christians. Imagine how this would have landed on the Jewish Christians in the Galatian church. I mean, you could have literally divided the whole world into two groups, Jew and Gentile, right? The word Gentile basically means nations, right? So the, the way that you define the Gentile people, it's not so much by describing who they are, it's by describing who they're not, right? The Gentiles are all of the not-Jews in the world. That's who the Gentiles are. So you've got the Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you've got all the rest of the not-Jew humans in the world, right? Can you imagine being born into a Jewish family? Really just try to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Having grown up, learning and reciting the law, hearing all the instructions to not intermingle with the idol-worshiping nations, Gentiles, growing up hearing about and hoping for the Messiah to come, the one who was going to wipe out the enemies of God's people and set up a throne in Jerusalem. And then you just happen to be born in the same century as the Messiah, the Christ. And even though he, he doesn't come in power in the way that you expect, and he doesn't talk like or act like what you thought, you're compelled. You're compelled by the love displayed in his death on the cross. You're compelled by the power displayed in an empty grave. And so you put your trust in this Christ, in this Messiah. And then you're told, you know all of those not-Jews in the world? You're actually one in Christ with them. That's the divide that Paul is addressing throughout his letter to the Galatians and in much of his writings. That's the power of the gospel, the power of faith in Christ, that you could be made one with people you've grown up all your life trying to avoid. Listen to what D.A. Carson writes. Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. 
What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation or togetherness, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says, and He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's great. Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The reality is that because of our sin, our rebellion against God, we all have the same need. And because of our faith in His completed work, we all have the same standing in Christ. Sin and faith are the great levelers in the world. So that's, that's how we're made one. Now, let, let's turn to the second question and ask, what does it look like to be made one in Christ? What does it look like? Well, look with me at verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel has not only made us new, at the, the fundamental level, we're given a new identity. It's made us one. At the, the fundamental level, we're brought into one family of God. We're not better because we come from this ethnic background or that social class or that gender. We're not more deserving of new life in Christ because of those things. I mean, if we understand that our need is just as great, our inability to save ourselves is just as pervasive as anyone else in the history of humanity, it lays the foundation for a deep, humble love for brother and sister and neighbor of every shape and size. We are, we are naturally prone to drawing dividing lines, right? Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? At least by our standards. Who's wrong? We naturally see ourselves as superior to that other group on the other side of whatever line we're looking at. That was as common in Paul's day as it is today and has been through every generation since. In the second century, a Jewish rabbi is recorded as um, praying this pattern of thanksgiving as a part of his just kind of normal prayers. He would pray, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. He was praising God for not being born, not being made a foreigner or a slave or a woman, which is pretty gross, right? Pretty ugly. But we see that same ugliness and its effects today. People on one side of the dividing line hold on to power and use it to mistreat those on the other side 
and throughout the history of this country, that mistreatment has happened to pretty much anyone that doesn't look like me. White, male, Christian. And what's more, that hasn't just happened outside, right? Like out in the world. That mistreatment has happened within and then per perpetrated by the church. Christian, that is anti-gospel. So opposed to the oneness and unity that is ours in Christ. God, forgive us. The only boundary line that truly exists is faith in Christ. And surely, we recognize that, that even the faith that we find in ourselves to trust in the finished work of Christ, even that faith is a gift. It wasn't ours to begin with, right? We who have received that kind of gift, been lavished with that kind of love, we should be the most humble and kind and open and welcoming people in the world. Heaven and new earth, I really believe this, are going to be, it's going to be the most diverse gathering of people in the history of all the universe. And God help us if we think ourselves better than, or we work to exclude and keep away from the very people we will share eternity with. The very people for whom Christ also died. Only Jesus makes us new and one. So, as I close, I want to give two points of application. First is, wear Jesus on your sleeve. Wear Jesus on your sleeve. I'm not saying everyone should rush out and get some new ink, but maybe that's for you. You've probably heard it said of someone, man, you know, he really wears his heart on his sleeve, or she really wears her emotions on her sleeve. And, and, and what someone means when they say that is that someone's really showing their emotion in an open and honest and visible Paul wrote that all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on a new robe. As Christians, we are to wear Jesus on our sleeves. If we put on Christ, that should be the most visible and distinguishing thing about us. Now to be clear, like being made new and and one in Christ, it doesn't mean that all distinctions in humanity are removed, right? Like God intends the church to be this great, this kind of amorphous blob, right? Um, ambiguous, undefined blob. And certainly, in recent years, this verse in Galatians 3, 3.28, has been really kind of ripped out of context to make a lot of claims. And there's not time to get into all of that, but certainly, like, being made new and one in Christ, it doesn't mean that all distinctions are removed. It means that our ethnic background, our, our social class, our, our gender and sexuality, that none of those things were the deciding factor in our salvation. And now on this side of being made new in Jesus, none of those things are the thing about us that we identify with 
most. Sure, someone is still going to be able to be able to tell, like, you are white and male and middle class, maybe, but are those the most distinguishing things about you? Or is it Christ? Is there any other title or identifier you hold more dear or wear more proudly than your new identity in Christ? Do people see you wearing your allegiance to an ethnicity? or a political party, or a social agenda, or a sexuality, or a job, or wealth, or hobby, or a doctrinal stance, more than you wear Jesus on your sleeve. Do people see Jesus on you and in your life? Now, I, not like this isn't a brag or even like an attempt at like a humble brag, no one has ever accused me of wearing my emotions on my sleeve, all right? And some of you are like me in, in here this morning, okay? And so let me encourage you. If you're like me and you don't naturally wear your heart on your sleeve, you're not naturally very outward and expressive. For those of you who know, like you, you're sitting here and you know, like, you, you don't do well at wearing Jesus on your sleeve, okay? Let, let me encourage you. What would it look like to take that next, just the next step, right? What, what opportunities do you regularly pass up to talk out loud about Jesus? Maybe it's with a neighbor or a coworker or someone even in your own household or your own family. What opportunities do you regularly just kind of let slide by, you just kind of turn and look the other way? When you could bring the peace and the goodness and the love of Jesus to a situation by being uncomfortable and inserting yourself. Take the next step. Like the next time that opportunity comes, in faith, with the power of the Holy Spirit, take that next step and wear Jesus on your sleeve. For those of you who think you actually do well, and some of you do well at wearing Jesus on your sleeve, and you talk about Jesus all the time with anyone who will listen or doesn't want to listen. Let me, let me just encourage you that there's a way to wear Jesus on your sleeve that may be unnecessarily putting up a boundary between that person and Jesus. And so maybe try to balance out the times that you would naturally talk out loud about Jesus with, like, Showing the love of Jesus in tangible acts of love and service to friend or neighbor or family member or coworker. Carlos, let's wear Jesus on our sleeves, in our families, in our community, in this neighborhood. So, one, wear Jesus on your sleeve. And the last point of application is... Work to live out the oneness that is ours in the gospel. Work to live out the oneness that is ours in the gospel. This passage in Galatians, it's not so much a call to unity as it is a call to maintain the unity that's already ours in Christ. If anything, we should receive it as a call to repentance for not walking in the oneness and the unity that fundamentally defines and is objectively true for the people of God in the gospel. 
the elders of Chorus, and I know you do too, like, we long for this church to be a more and more diverse family. A family where there are no others, where there are no outsiders, but we recognize it's going to take a work of God in all of us for that to be true. So I just wonder, if you, if you survey your life, you just kind of survey your relational circles, your neighborhood, your dinner table, your backyard, and you find a lack of diversity there, I want to encourage you this morning. Don't rush past that. Don't dismiss it. Don't chalk it up to, that's just where I live, or it's just the people that I'm comfortable being around. What if the lack of diversity in our own lives reveals a subtle kind of pride, a subtle kind of prejudice? Because when we don't associate with those people, whoever those people are, we're withholding from them the grace and the love of God in Christ. Chorus, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female, rich or poor, prodigal or Pharisee, homeless or home, conservative or liberal, single or married, young or old. We are all one in Christ. I shared this in a sermon during the election season last year, but you have more in common, Christian, with the brother or sister in Christ on the other side of the aisle than you do with your unbelieving neighbor who perfectly lines up with you politically. Do you feel that? Christian with white skin, you have more in common with your brother or sister in Christ of color than with your unbelieving family member with whom you have shared your whole life. And the list could go on and on. As one who is pretty much in the cultural majority or the dominant group in basically every category, right? White, male, Christian, though that's not as much as it once was, straight, middle class, I have to listen to those who have different stories than mine and not think that mine is the only valid experience or perspective in the world. At the, like, at the risk of sounding way too simplistic, here are a few things that like, you could start to do, right? To, to help walk out your oneness in the gospel. Um, some of you probably listen to worship music regularly, right? Listen to some worship music in a different style, and maybe even a different language than what you naturally prefer, right? I love our music here at Chorus, but for all eternity, we're probably not always going to be singing with a piano or a guitar, right? It's probably not always going to sound like this. So, Let's start now, right? And don't stop there, okay? That's just like low fruit, okay? Don't stop there. Um, break bread with people 
in your home, around your table, people who are very different than you, look different than you, maybe have a different first language, maybe have a different faith background or religion, maybe have a different opinion on politics or morality, sexuality. Break bread with people and hear their stories without having to try to convince them of the rightness of your opinion. Break bread with people. And prioritize relationship over comfort. I think for all of us this morning, we, we can identify like some groups of people that we don't feel comfortable around. I'm not talking about like feeling unsafe, although safety is probably an idol for a lot of us. I'm talking about when you think of a group of people who are like, yeah, I just don't feel real comfortable around here. To walk out our oneness in the gospel, we have to prioritize relationship over our own comfort. Relationship is more important than your comfort. Church, we must repent of the ways that we have walked in, that we haven't walked in the oneness that is uniquely ours in the gospel. We, we must do the work of living out that oneness. And by do the work, I mean it's probably not just going to happen in your life, right? It's going to take Holy Spirit empowered effort on all of our parts. Let's do that work together. Only Jesus makes this new one. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you continue to shape us through it. Give us a hunger to know you in it. Thank you for Jesus that we can be made new and one through faith in him. God, we just recognize that we, we have so far to go. Father, forgive us for, for not walking in that newness in our lives, for clinging to old patterns and old lifestyles. God, forgive us for not walking in the oneness that is ours in the gospel. Empower us by your spirit to work that out in our everyday lives. God, make this a family that is more and more diverse and that will more and more reflect the community around us, but more and more reflect heaven. We need you in that.